Now, Doug Shipman is a name you'd recognize if you work in the Atlanta art space or you work in nonprofits. He was the founding CEO for the Center for Civil and Human Rights. And most recently, he was the CEO for the Woodruff Art Center. Doug has never run for public office, but he is well-respected in many parts of the city. He's known as an out-of-the-box thinker, uh, someone who's willing to shake things up and try a new approach. The big question for Doug, will voters prioritize leadership or legislative experience when they select a new city council president? All right, Doug, Doug Shipman. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Yeah. All right. Today we're going to ask you a bunch of tough questions. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to, well, there'll be some tough questions, but really want folks to understand who you are. You've never run for elected office before. So give us people a sense of who is Doug Shipman? Why in the world is he running for elected office? And what is your vision for the city? But before we do all that, we're going to start today with a segment called How Atlanta Are You? All okay. Right. All right, and this is up to the viewers to decide and the voters to decide <laughs> just how Atlanta is. Okay. Shipman. All right. So, now granted, you have, you have a family and kids, but before that, when you were hanging out late at night in Atlanta, where did you go? Uh, so, back when I was in college, especially, you could find me probably at uh, Masquerade. I would be on Masquerade, especially on a Thursday night, Friday night. Then I might hit the Waffle House over on Cheshire Bridge. That was my Waffle House because um, it was open really late. And there was a woman there who was a witch. And we used to like to hang out with her as our server because she'd tell us some interesting stories. And TLC used to hang out there. And so that was always cool to run into them. Uh, and then um, occasionally we would go to Buckhead um, back in the day when Buckhead had a lot of the nightlife. Uh, and then uh, one of my favorite memories was sleeping out for Prince tickets in front of the Fox all night in order to get like seventh row Prince tickets with a friend of mine named Lee uh, from college. So that was that was a good time. Got it. Um, when you think about the place or the block that really just epitomizes Atlanta, what is that for you? Uh, that block for me has got to be um, – basically two or three blocks around Auburn Avenue and the John Wesley Dobbs um, statue because you had the SCLC headquarters, you go on down the street and you have El old Ebenezer, you go the other way and you have the Royal Peacock. Um, and obviously given my, you know, my work around the uh, legacy of civil rights, that block Butler street YMCA, of course, on the cross street, just that, that area just has so much packed into it to me that. You, you can't understand Atlanta if you don't understand, you know, three or four blocks right around that area. Got it. Uh, if you're going for wings or for pizza in the city, where are you going? Uh, am I with my kids or not with my kids? You can do one of each. Okay. So if I'm with my kids, I'm going to a place called Amaza in Fourth Ward because they have glitter pizza that's edible. And so you got to you gotta basically have the, the kids. Um, if it's me, uh, Does glitter get all over you when you eat the pizza. Thankfully, no, it okay. sticks to the cheese and okay. it doesn't actually, it's, it's a good call cause it could get really bad. Um, if it's me by myself, um, where am I going to get pizza? Um, that's an interesting question or wings. Um, I'm probably going to, I'm probably going to go to, um, honestly, I'm going to go to Antico. That's where I'm going to go for pizza. 
Um, wings, I'm probably going to go to, uh, I don't really, I'm not a wings guy, to be honest. I have to be honest. I'm probably not going to go for wings. I go to barbecue. So I'll get barbecue. I might get a wings on the side. Got it. Um, All right. So Antico, you get, you're getting what kind of pizza and what are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking, I am getting a, um, the spiciest pizza they have on the menu because it's all about spice. And anything that I eat, I'm going to go for the spicy. Sorry, Keith. So any anything with peppers, anything with, you know, lots of spice. And what am I drinking? I'm probably drinking, um, it's usually it's a local beer. So I'll be drinking some sort of local beer that looks interesting on that day. Whatever's on draft. Got it. All right. Um, and other than the neighborhood that you live in, mm-hmm. like what's your favorite hangout spot in Atlanta? What's your favorite neighborhood in Atlanta? Um, my favorite neighborhood other than my own, um, that's kind of a tough one. Um, I would probably say, oh, I'd probably say, um, I'd probably say Ormwood. And the reason is because it has, it, it's got the Beltline running through it, which is always a good thing. It's got Three Parks Wine, which is my favorite, one of my favorite small shops in the city. Um, I love just to go down there and talk to Sarah, who owns the place. Uh, and I, I, that, that would probably be, that would be the spot probably that I would say right now. Got it. All right. So, again, we will let the people decide. Understood. Just how Just like an election. You That's let the right. people decide what they think about the whole That's thing. That's right. All right, so now we're going to get just a little bit about who are you. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously, folks can read your bio on your website, but beyond that, tell us about you know where you grew up, what your household was like. Are you the only child? Are you the oldest? Are you the middle? What's your story there? Yeah, so I am the youngest of three boys. Uh, my I was the last, and I was supposed to be the girl, so I'm 10 years behind my next brother and 13 behind my eldest brother. Um, I grew up in rural Arkansas in a town of 1,200. My father had been a preacher, and my mom was a school teacher. Uh, and it was a very rural area, sort of like North Georgia without Atlanta. It's just rural in all directions. Um, and I knew very early that I was going to leave. I just knew that 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 I was not going to stay there. And so everything that I did, I would do summer you know, academic camps away, or I would go to sleepaway camp or whatever was just starting to build the notion of leaving. Uh, and um, my parents were very supportive. I also grew up playing uh, basketball. I, this town was so small, we didn't have football. So we played basketball. So I was a basketball player my whole time. Uh, and that was a big part of my life there. And then I ended up getting a scholarship to go to Emory. And that's how I got to Atlanta. And I actually played hoops at Emory my first year, believe it or not. Um, all five, nine and a half of me played. I was about to say, you're not, you know, I am, six, six. I am not. I, I could not. I could not get size. That was, uh, I stopped growing, but I did have um, a decent uh, jump shot. Uh, and so I was able to play hoops for a year. Uh, and I also grew up with a real deep interest in history, always interested in history, always interested in kind of community, civic, political issues. Um, those were always important to me. And so, especially when I got to Atlanta, I sort of dove into those things. Uh, my parents still live in the small town. 
Um, and uh, I go back to visit them regularly. How much has that town changed since you were? Well, there's a sign now that says it's 2,000 people. Oh, but I huge. think that's really marketing. I think it's still really about still 1,200 people, but now just they want to feel like it's big. Um, but honestly, it has gone through a lot of, of pressures that we've seen rural areas go through. It's had a huge opioid crisis. Um, it has had a real economic um, headwind. A lot of the big, it used to be manufacturing kind of in the area. A lot of those places have closed. It's, it's, a, it's a tough, tougher place to live than when I lived there for sure. Hmm. Not bad. It's only my phone is hitting the table. Yeah, we, I mean, we hear everything. All right. I can hear all that money in the pocket right now. <laughs> <laughs> There's no money in my pocket. Hey, we just had a candidate who pretended like they didn't have any money. <laughs> not, not, not your previous. It's not I know, it is. Yeah, I <laughs> All right. Um, so grew up in Arkansas, mm -hmm. the youngest of three boys came to Atlanta to go to Emory. See, that's what happens when you mess up my flow. All right. So you, you were, you were born in Arkansas, came to Atlanta for college, uh, clearly have enjoyed the living in town metro, you know, big city life. Uh, but what would you say about the rural uh, way of, of living is something that people in Atlanta might appreciate? Well, first, I think the um, thing you got to understand about my town was that there was no diversity. So you, we used to joke that we had two minority families in town, the two Catholic families. I mean, we didn't have any religious diversity. We had no racial diversity. And so I think in, in one way, it's it's not at all comparable, my experience to living in Atlanta or really in a lot of other places. But I will say that any town that's that small certainly has very deep multi-generational relationships, which are really um, uh, are things that you depend on. You have a lot of um, real focus on the school, the community center, those fest, the annual festivals. I mean, not unlike a neighborhood, right? But it's just that it encompasses the whole town. But I think the other thing is that, you know, there are food traditions, there are music traditions that very much are very familiar. I mean, when I got to Atlanta, um, uh, Ebenezer Baptist was still having services in the original sanctuary and I used to go to services and when I would look up the songs for the day at the service, they were the same songs that I had sung in my little country church that was all white in rural Arkansas. There are a lot of similarities like that that you discover that, that translate from rural areas, especially rural areas relatively in the South to urban areas in the South that are still very, very familiar and very much the same. Um, I think the, I think the other is just your relationship with nature is very different. I mean, where I grew up in essence had a Lake Lanier and a river out the other side of the dam in the town. And so you can hike, you can fish, you can boat, you can just, you just have a very different relationship with nature than you do in an urban environment. And I think that's, um, during COVID, I think we've gotten a little taste of that. Right. We've gotten because we everybody was stuck. You got a little bit more of that notion. But I think growing up in a rural area, you get a lot of it. And that's that's a good thing. That's a fun thing um, that's different than living in a city. Yeah. So 
Once at Emory, what did you do after uh, undergrad? So I graduated from college. I ended up taking a job for a couple of years at a bank in Richmond, Virginia. And then I ended up uh, deciding I was going to go to grad school. And I ended up going to Harvard. And I did a degree in theology at the Divinity School. And really wanted to go there because there were several scholars, including Cornell West at the time and Preston Williams at the time, who were um, very much in uh, studying religion and social movements, which is what I was interested in. And then I went to the Kennedy School uh, uh, at Harvard for public policy. And so I did both of those in three years. And I came back to Atlanta when uh, uh, my wife and I had decided that we wanted to come here. And she went to Emory Medical School and we settled in. So you met her at Harvard? I met her actually at Emory undergrad. She was a year behind me and she had grown up in Marietta. And um, then we, I ended up helping recruit her to my first job in Richmond. And that's where we basically got together for good. And then we were in Boston together and then we came back to Atlanta. Got it. So you come back to Atlanta or you come to Atlanta and you say um, after, after going to uh, undergrad and, or excuse me, after going to grad school, you come back to Atlanta, and what's the what's like the first thing that you say? I'm going to go do this, whether it's civic or community related. Like, what was the thing that you wanted to go do? Yeah, so we actually moved back to Little Five Points, and we lived in the Bass Lofts in Little Five Points. And um, so I wanted to jump back into the Atlanta art scene, actually, because um, I had had a bunch of friends who had gone into it after college. And one of the first things that I did was I went to a show that Out of Hand Theater had was putting on because I knew one of the folks who was a part of it coming out of grad school, named um, now named Ariel Fristo. And it was their very first show, and I was so impressed. I called them and I said, can I be on your board of directors? And they said, yeah, sure. We're, we don't even have board of directors. You can totally be on it. And that, I, that was one of the first things that I did was to jump back into the art scene um, when I got back. Um, and it was... You know, it was now, you know, 2001, it was post-Olympics, it was, things were, it was sort of that whole period was over, and now it was on to the next stage. And there was really some some interesting kind of vibrant stuff happening at the time, especially in arts and culture, and so that's what I dove back into when I got back. Got it. I think a lot of folks probably know you from the Center for Civil and Human Rights. So, how did that come about? Uh, just give us a little bit of background on that and yeah. your involvement. So I I'd had, you know, both in undergrad and grad school, I'd had these deep experiences around studying civil rights history, um, studying Malcolm X, studying Martin Luther King Jr., studying Gandhi. And um, so I was working for a private sector consulting firm called BCG, not doing anything around civil rights, nothing around government or anything, just private sector stuff. But Shirley Franklin, when she was mayor, had used BCG in Bain for pro bono projects, called BCG and said, it's your turn to take a pro bono, which means I'm not going to pay you. Does anybody over there know anything about civil rights history or museums? And the person who got the call said, we don't know anything about museums. And we got one guy who knows a lot about civil rights history, but he's 32 and he's white. Do you care? And Mayor Franklin said, as long as he's free, I send him over. I just don't want to pay for him. And I had met her on the campaign trail. I'd shaken her hand just at a forum uh, but really had never had never really talked to her. And so it was a 10-week pro bono project to, to try to understand whether or not there was a good idea here. And in those 10 weeks, really very immediately, we agreed that it should be civil and human rights. 
that it should be very, very interactive, that it should really be focused on people who didn't live through the movement. It should celebrate those who lived through it, but it was really built for the generations after. And those kernels of the ideas that you see today really were birthed in those 10 weeks. And so that 10-week project then spawned another year and a half of a pro bono project of me again working for free that then led to me you know, being the first employee. Um, but it really came down to one phone call, and the idea had come from Evelyn Lowry to Mayor Franklin. And Evelyn Lowry was? Evelyn Lowry was a, a very preeminent civil rights leader. She was the spouse of Joseph Lowry. She was um, also um, the founder of SCLC Women, um, and she had played a very prominent role, not only in the civil rights movement, beyond, uh, but beyond for both women's rights, very early HIV work uh, in African-American communities. And she had come to Mayor Franklin and said, I really think we need an institution that talks about the totality of the movement and that connects it to contemporary issues. And so that's how it, it had started. Got it. And so you managed, oversaw the opening of that um, and were there for how long? So the pro bono started in 05. I started um, as full-time first employee in 07. It opened in 2014, and I departed after it had opened uh, in 2015. And then what did you do next? So I went back to the private sector. I went back to BCG, who had acquired a small consulting firm um, that was um, had been sold by Joey Ryman, who some people know because he was a, an advertising guy. And I went back to BCG to, to run this small company that they were then growing. Uh, and I did that for two years. And along the way, I was recruited to be the head of the Woodruff Heart Center. So I went from uh, there in 2017 to be the CEO of the Woodruff Heart Center. Okay. So, Doug, you've been heavily involved in the Atlanta civic space, both with the Center for Civil and Human Rights, as we just talked about, and then the Woodruff Arts Center, uh, which is, I don't know what the, the budget for the Woodruff Arts Center, but it's, I know it's pretty doggone large. It's about $100 million. It's third largest art center in the country. It's obviously the, the largest um, arts institution in the city, and it has the symphony the High Museum, the Alliance Theater, and then kind of all the other parts of uh, performances there. So what would you say is missing or uh, something that folks don't quite understand about the civic uh, landscape in Atlanta? I think the couple of things to appreciate about the civic landscape are that one, for the most part, the civic landscape doesn't get a lot of public support like it does in some other cities or states. Um, now, the Center for Civil and Human Rights got a lot of public support, um, but for instance, the Woodruff Arts Center gets very little. Most of the arts community gets very little. Um, a lot of the support that our nonprofits get are fee-for-service. There's, there's service contracts. It's not really philanthropy from public sectors. That's different than other states and other uh, cities. And, so and I, why is that, would you say? Well, I think that, that historically we have not seen the public sector in part because of just the, the political way in which the public sector has thought about taxes and also has thought about economic development. Um, we haven't thought about our civic sector as an economic development um, engine like some other places have. Like New York is kind of the obvious example of Broadway and such, you know, and just the overall sort of civic sector gets a lot more support. And I think, too, the corporate sector is incredibly generous and has been for a long time. And so the public sector hasn't had to, to fill in because the private sector and the corporate sector has. So I think one is to understand is that it's a, it is not really underwritten. There's a lot of 
both philanthropy, but also our civic sector is very good at earning money. I mean, the Woodruff Arts Center, more than 50% of its income comes from earned revenue. The symphony earns more than almost every symphony in the country for its size. Atlanta is very good from its nonprofit sector of being commercial because it has to be. And a lot of people don't understand that. So there's a lot more business to our nonprofit sector than I think a lot of people understand. Um, I think the other is how big, frankly, our civic sector is. It, you know, our, if you just, let's just take arts and culture alone, excluding film, arts and culture is about the ninth biggest industry in the city. I mean, it is, it is bigger than Delta Airlines, for instance. But I don't think we kind of think about our civic sectors that way. Our nonprofit sector is huge. We've got major nonprofit headquarters here, CARE, Boys and Girls Club, Habitat for Humanity. These are major economic engines. And I think that sometimes we either take them for granted or don't really realize how big they are and how much they drive in the city. Um, I think a lot of people don't understand that. Um, and I think also um, that, that some folks don't understand how much of the social services are really being taken care of. We're a very low tax state. The state obviously is um, not, you know, we don't have Medicaid expansion. We don't have some, some of the basic safety nets that other states do. So our Salvation Armies and our, um, you know, um, operation pieces and our, our um, nonprofit sector is a lot of our safety net and much more so, I think, than other cities and states. And so I think some people don't understand that. They think that the state or the city does a lot more than actually it may be doing in our particular case. So what role in your mind, does the city have, um, and you can answer this kind of broadly, This, what should the city of Atlanta be doing, and then kind of tailoring that to the council, right? So what role should they have um, in maintaining or raising the safety net as we know it today? Well, I think the first thing is the city needs to make sure that every single part of the city has a certain threshold of infrastructure and services and basic standard, right? So, for instance, I, I did a map, and other people have done it too, but I wanted to make sure it was true. If you map poverty in the city and you map which areas don't have a park within 10 minutes, you get basically the same map. So, we have not invested in park space in our most depressed neighborhoods. There was a national study done that the number of trash cans provided by a city are correlated with income in the neighborhood. More trash cans, richer neighborhoods, less trash cans, poorer neighborhoods. So I think first and foremost, the city has got to make sure that we don't, we don't underinvest in any part of the city. Um, and I think that historically, we've thrown a lot of economic incentives and we've thrown a lot of our public investment into the places we thought were going to economically grow. And so we've said, let's put our resources towards the midtowns and the in the pot city markets the and the buckets. Yeah. Mostly. And and that makes sense in one sense and that you, you're going to continue that growth. But that growth hasn't manifested itself across the whole city. We have 25% poverty going into COVID, right? We know there are neglected parts of the city. And so I think it's, I think first, even before you get to a safety net, you have a basic obligation that the city ought to be making sure that every part of the city has a minimum standard of investment and a minimum standard of infrastructure so everybody can build a life, right? That's one. Two, I think economically we've seen, again, we've put a lot of incentives into um, larger 
projects into certain neighborhoods that already have a lot of, of economic vitality instead of saying, let's actually invest in neglected neighborhoods. Let's actually invest in very small businesses that are locally owned. Let's actually open up capital to them because they can't get capital, right? It's very hard for those places. It feels high risk to investors. That's where the public sector ought to be stepping in more so and really creating some economic incentives and vitality there. And so I think that, that too, we need to be doing more of that in neglected neighborhoods and letting the market and the forces that be take care of more of the uh, growth when it comes to, you know, the places that we've seen growth before. Then third, I think what we've seen is particularly Atlanta, and I think the council has an oversight responsibility to help, has struggled with just getting funds out the door for things that have come from the federal government for workforce training, for um, housing for those with HIV, for rental assistance during COVID. Millions and millions of dollars. And years and years. Years and years and millions of dollars. Correct. Correct. Right. And so if you're going to, if you're going to talk about a social safety net, you got to start, you know, at the very first with the things that have already been done, that have already been, um, have been, you know, given and have been legislated to make sure they get out the door. Because if you're not doing those things, you can't get more of those things as they flow from the federal government. And you also don't have the trust of the citizens who say, well, gosh, you know, we, I thought you had that money. Why, don't, why isn't it coming out? And so I think that we've got to make sure that, that, that there's oversight from the city council level. So one, the city council can change incentives. Two, city council can absolutely provide oversight to make sure that those things get out the door. And if they're not getting out the door, to be raising a red flag around them. But then it, there's not just, and then there's. But hasn't and, the council done that before? I mean, I I know the council before has, uh, to some extent, raised hell about the AIDS money not being spent or having to be returned. The same thing with workforce development and millions of dollars having to go back to the federal government. The ultimate uh, stick that a city council has is not approving a budget. If the city's not working correctly, then don't approve budgets hold up a budget process, or make the budget contingent on certain performance factors. The fact that don't we've seen... Put, don't you put city employees at risk by doing that, though? You you may put city's employ, employees at risk, but ultimately the city council has to be the one that arbitrates whether or not the city is effectively spending its money. And ultimately, the the, the, the power divide is clear. This, the mayor is basically the CEO of the city, is responsible for delivering the budgets and delivering the services that have been outlined by policy. The city council is the legislative branch. The city council can't, can't use the excuse, well, we can't do anything because then somebody might lose a job. If we have people with HIV during a pandemic who are facing eviction, that has to be a line in the sand that we draw. And it, ultimately, I think the city council has to say, we're not going to approve X until Y gets fixed. That is the job of the city council. Yeah, but you're voting on the budget once a year. It's not like you're, you're voting on the budget every other month. You could you could put triggers in in which you say, if these things aren't, if we're going to do it on a quarterly release basis, if these metrics aren't met, then we're going to hold up this kind of quarterly release. We're going to have a six-month review. There are policy ways in which you can have more oversight in certain areas if you think that, that there's not performance in those areas, especially when we, to your point, it's when it comes to, for instance, uh, workforce training, we've had to send money back. I mean, that that should be an ultimate unacceptable outcome to receive money from the federal government and then be forced to send it back. 
that should just not be something that we as a council say, hey, we're going to allow that to continue. There has to be some sort of situation in which you say because of that, then there's an implication here. So what you just proposed is something that I would say is a bit out of the box, not, not in a bad way, but it's out of the box. Um, how do you get eight other council members to say, I am willing to risk holding up the budget, having city employees upset at me because we can't make payroll because the city hasn't passed a budget, vendors at the airport or other places who say, well, I, I'm not getting a check because of the city, right? How do, how do you get political will? Sure. For something like that? Well, let's back up. We already have situations right now. I had a small business roundtable and small business owners told me in multiple situations, they have to wait more than 180 days to get paid for city services. So the notion that we don't already have a situation in which vendors are not getting paid, we have that right now as we sit here today. We have small businesses that won't do business with the city. We have nonprofits that won't do business with the city for the same issues. I had a conversation with somebody from a major nonprofit that said they've been waiting a year and a half for services to be paid that they rendered a year and a half ago. So we already have a situation in which we are actually um, damaging our nonprofit and our small businesses because of our inability to get dollars out the door. So I think we have to deal with the reality that this isn't new. This is actually an existing problem. How do you build the political will? One, you got to have transparency so people know about it. So it can't just be one segment that understands this is a problem. So I think a city council president, I had a conversation with a former city council president. And they said your first hire ought to be a infographic specialist so that you can be the explainer in chief and that everybody can understand that you get rid of the complexity, but that you make it very simple for people to understand what the problem is. So first way to build political will is you got to have very clear transparency in very simple terms. This much money, it's been waiting this long, here's who gets damaged. Two, you can't just be concentrated on eight votes on council. You also have to build a consensus among small business owners if they're the ones not getting paid, those who are living with HIV, if they're the ones that are being damaged, the communities around them. I think you have to build a consensus outside of council that says, yeah, we understand this is a problem and we really want you as council to react to it. And I think that also helps in getting the, the, the administration's attention to say, okay, this isn't a small issue. This is a big issue. So I think that you actually have to have good information and you have to basically build a consensus that we should concentrate on this. And then the council needs to be willing to give the resources that are appropriate. If the mayor or city administrators say, look, we don't have the staff to do this. We don't have the technology to do this. Okay, then let's actually solve that problem. So you can't build all the consensus around fixing it and then not actually do the things that, that need to be done in order to fix a situation. So I think that's the flip side of it is if you build that consensus, then you can't say, well, that's not our problem. Now we've just, we've just highlighted the problem, but you know, it's up to somebody else to solve. I think then you have to have the final step, which says, here's how you actually solve it. Here's actually how you get a system that's going to work so that we don't have this situation before. One other point. Transparency isn't just about finding things that are wrong. Transparency is also about trying to avoid things becoming big problems and catching them when they're small problems. And I think the other thing around a lot of these types of issues is that if you've got better insights, you can catch them early. Open checkbook's a great thing, right? You have all these transactions online. But if you go on and try to analyze that data, there are no easy tools that you can use, right? Just anybody can go in and say, well, how much do we spend on this or how much in this neighborhood? We ought to go the next step and actually put a front end way in which a city council staffer or a citizen or an MPU head can actually use the open checkbook data. Because right now it's just a bunch of data. 
And that, while it is transparency, it's no insight. And so I think that's another example of how you build you build not only credibility, but you can build consensus because everybody can go in and start to see and understand where the issues are. Got it. So as a council president, you won't be introducing legislation, Correct. although you could ask a council member to to read in some legislation and, and uh, sign it on your behalf, so to speak. Um, so given that, are there some policies that you want to see, uh, some legislation you want to see introduced in the first 100 days? So I think there are a few issues that we really have to think about quickly. One, I think we have to really think about our anti-displacement policies for both rental and homeowner um, individuals and residents. I think we've seen enormous for forces and investments moving through, especially coming out of COVID. I don't think that we have strong enough anti-displacement policies when it comes to owners, when it comes to tax abatements, when it comes to renters, when it comes to land trusts. I think we've got to move on that quickly because the quicker we move, the better. And the more we wait, the more the market forces just continue to push. What does that look like? I think for, for owners, it means length of abatements. I think it, it means looking at the potential for multi-generational abatements where somebody, if their children take it and continue to live there, that actually the abatements continue. It's just not just an abatement. For an abatement is basically a, a tax a tax cut and or complete tax elimination if somebody continues to live there. I think we should increase our um, support for um, home uh, refurbishments because a lot of times somebody may be able to stay, but they can't fix the roof or they can't fix something that's broken on the rental side. And then it's also extending the timeline. I think we a lot of times these things are not extended long enough. On the rental side, it really is about ownership of the the asset itself. It's really a land trust, basically, as a nonprofit, or it can be a, a public entity that purchases the property and then is the is the entity that keeps it affordable. We've seen the Beltline move into this space. ADA, uh, the Atlanta, I'm sorry, Atlanta Housing Authority has moved into this space. But I think we need more public-private funding for more land trusts. We have several land trusts, but they really aren't at scale. They're not that big. I think we need to be doing those purchases. So I think anti-displacement is a big policy initiative we should push. I think that uh, looking at the more MARTA transit and putting Beltline Transit at the top of the agenda is vital because there's so much development happening on the Beltline. If you don't make the, the commitment to Beltline Transit, you're going to get one kind of development. If you make a commitment to Beltline Transit, you have the potential to get a different kind of development, which is less car-centric, potentially less parking spots, which make things more affordable. You actually have a better chance of affordability if you invest in Beltline Transit. And by doing it early, it's cheaper to do because transit building transit always inflates. So I think actually making that a hard commitment early could help spur the kind of development that we all want along the Beltline. And if we don't, I think we're probably going to not get the kind of development that we want. So you think the development that has happened along the Beltline now that is not necessarily transit-oriented, do you think that's happened because there's a you know, a lack of clarity around if there will actually be Oh, for be sure. I mean, I think you can see that even in the design and some of the buildings that have been built, they haven't necessarily been built with a with a face to the Beltline. They've been facing out to their, their parking lot and the Beltline is sort of a nice amenity on the back, but it's not really oriented to say, oh, this is where all of our traffic is going to come from, right? But isn't that the role of, of the city planning department to say, hey, eventually, we don't know when, it might be 50 years from now, but eventually... There's going to be transit on here, and you need to build a building that's going to work for transit on the Bell Line. 
I mean, you could do it through regulation, but the uh, but the market has clearly shown that it doesn't believe it yet. I mean, we have not, and we also have, you know, for instance, parking minimums. So we're saying, hey, you still have to build a certain amount of parking, even though you're right next to the belt line. So I mean, our, you, if you could do it through regulation, you could, but you'd have to align a whole bunch of policies. On the other side, we've talked about having belt line transit. It was part of the 2016 um, transit tax that we passed. To me, it, you need probably both. But the big point is to say, look, we're actually going to earmark this money on this timeline to start Beltline Transit. We're going to start digging. That will actually signal that, in fact, those those investments are going to be made. So I think, and I think it's ex- because of the development timeline, it's extremely timely. So I think that's a second one. So um, just on that, yeah. so Beltline Transit, if the city get, gets very clear and says, you know, publicly pledges to add transit on the Beltline, doesn't, if the city publicly pledges to add transit on the Beltline, doesn't that also simultaneously spur a housing market, you know, boom where anything that's remotely affordable on the Beltline is just is completely taken up and there's not enough time to react uh, and, and, you know, and to make, and to grab those spots before. Remember, my first point was anti-displacement policy. You put the anti-displacement policy, including your land bank usage, exactly for that issue. You've got to have those policies in place as you're basically making the move along the Beltline. Now, look, you've already got a land boom along the Beltline as it happens. Thankfully, the Beltline, uh, Beltline Inc. actually made a major land, a couple of major land purchases over by the West Side Park, which was smart for this exact reason. They basically said, okay, we know what's going to happen when the West Side Park and Microsoft is announced, so we're going to go and buy millions of dollars worth of property in order to hold it for affordability. That's what you have to do. You've got to have both of those things moving basically early. But you can, if you have those anti-displacement policies in place and those land trust models, you can control some of the affordability around it. And transit is going to allow you a different kind of life affordability because you could imagine then that you could have a carless kind of existence, right? And so that that actually lowers your- It's a novel your, idea. It's a novel <laughs> idea in Atlanta, but it could be a very different kind of, you know, if you had much less transit costs, that actually is a real impact on a household budget. So I think that's a second big one that we've got to do very uh, quickly. I think the third is we have to very quickly move on an infrastructure plan. And we have to move on it because one, we need it. But two, there's a lot of infrastructure legislation at the federal level. We hear about it a lot. Infrastructure one, infrastructure two. If we don't have a very clear sense of how we would spend those infrastructure dollars, we may end up in the same situation we did. The Beltline missed two what are called Tiger Grants, which are federal grants, because we weren't fully aligned on what how we were going to use them, and other cities got those Tiger Grants. I think that in the first 100 days of the new administration, we've got to move very quickly on an infrastructure capital plan because we're going to be in a, a funding cycle, and we don't want to miss that funding cycle. Now, the mayor, if I'm not mistaken, has already said $700 million, I think, is the number that she put out there between a five-year T-SPLOS transportation sales tax, um, and then I believe the other was bond a bond referendum. So is, is that sufficient? Um, I don't think there's enough of a detailed plan behind the funding mechanisms. I think we need, I think we need a, a review of more MARTA. I think we need a very clear, we've, we've tossed around, we have a billion dollars in sidewalks, but we need a, a much more detailed plan of what that looks like. I think we need a, a much more detailed plan around what our sustainability infrastructure looks like so that it's not just we think it's going to cost X amount of money, but that we say, look, 
for the first 200 million, we're going to do this for the next 400 million. We're going to do this so that it is, it is much more detailed. And also we can build consensus around it because I think that anytime you make big investments, you're going to have to build community consensus. And so I think that you're better off doing that on a very specific basis instead of doing it just from a money basis, which let's just get 700 million and we'll figure out how to spend it later. I think you, you're much better off to really design, not designing, but really articulating where you think those investments are going to go and getting alignment around So treating them. it more like your your household budget. Treating well, it more like your household project. What, right. You're yeah. clear on uh, this is what I'm, I need and this is what it's going to cost Correct. for me to That's right. accomplish it. And then, I, and then I think that within the first 100 days, we there are some technical aspects around public safety that we need to address that will help us as we try to make the public safety situation better. I think we we what need are to. Some of those? I think we need to have a very clear maintenance plan around, for instance, all the the camera investments we've made. But we've seen that some of them don't work. We've seen that some of them aren't attached to the network. We seem to have done a, a, a lot more planning around the capital outlays than the maintenance. So I think we need a very clear maintenance plan so that folks can understand that okay, we've got a handle on how we're going to actually use those assets. I think we have to look at police incentives. For instance, we have a fairly weak incentive for college-educated police officers. The suburbs has have a much higher incentive. That means that it's hard for us to recruit college-educated officers. And college-educated officers in two national studies have shown that they commit less citizen violence than non-college-educated officers. So when we talk about the kind of policing we want, we should be having incentives that basically line up with the, that kind of policing. So I think we need to get our incentives right when it comes to um, to uh, recruiting and retaining of officers. I think that, that three, we've got to make sure that we have um, some plan and investments around traffic calming and around how we think about um, street usage. I think that street racing has become an issue that makes people not want to go out. And not going out means that everybody is less safe because I think, I think more than street racing, the the likelihood of getting shot or stabbed is probably a reason why folks aren't going out. Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I've actually talked to a lot of folks who say public safety is an issue, but it's not necessarily as much in my neighborhood. And then I talk to some people who say public safety is an issue and it is in my neighborhood. So that you've got two issues. One is around how safe people feel, and then the other is also just the nuisance around how people feel when they go out. I think it's a little bit of both. The thing is around street racing, that is something you can proactively address. You can address it through traffic calming. You can address it through the way you deal with lights. I mean, one idea that that somebody brought to me, it was not my idea, but they said, look, we've timed all the lights down Peachtree to synchronize. Why not untime them to not synchronize from 9 p.m. to 6 a.m.? That creates a different kind of traffic flow. That's a pretty good idea. That's that's something that that actually you could accomplish, so that you actually have a different kind of way in which the street is you know operating at night than it is during the day. I think that we need to, of of course, we need to be thinking about violent crime, but we also need to be thinking about the things that keep people from wanting to go out because there's a vicious cycle that's created when people don't want to go out. People are less safe. When people feel less safe, they don't want to go out, and that spawns on itself. We've seen that, you know, in areas that the that we've had incidents and we have a perception of a lack of safety, you have less people on the street, and that leads to a less safe neighborhood. We know that, and so I think we've got to have a very clear sense from in the in the first few hundred days, in the hundred days or first couple hundred days, we have to have a very clear sense of the kinds of investments that we can make so that people can feel safer about their communities. I think that clearly everyone is concerned. 
So a lot of the things that you talked about, there's clearly a financial component to mm-hmm. that. So are you proposing uh, fees to help fund some of these things? How would you pay for some of these? So we already have 275 net new officers in the budget for this year. Howard Shook has gone on the record and said he thinks that actually the budget could could handle 400 net new officers. And Howard Shook is a council member. He's a council member. For, part of, part of he's former finance chair. So I haven't done the math to, to back up his number. But clearly there is already within the budget an expansion of uh, number of police staff. I also think that as we as we expand the police staff uh, or as we hire back to fill, we should be also hiring mental health and domestic violence specialists. I think we've seen the Denver model and other cities in which you disaggregate which kinds of skills respond to which kinds of calls. And I think that we've seen that that works. And I think that especially here when we talk about violence, we know that some of that is driven by mental health. We know that some of that's driven by domestic violence. We know that some of that's driven by substance abuse. We ought to have specialists responding because we actually can potentially have a better outcome if we have a specialist. So I think we should have, uh, we have a lot of funds already in the budget in order to do some of the things we're talking about. Two, we know that we have COVID funds from the federal government. We have another round of it that is left that that has a lot of flexibility that I think we should look very, very hard around using that flexibility to make some of those investments. Has the city, do you know how much the city has actually distributed of the COVID relief funds they've already received? Well, the city, the city has used a fair bit of that money. My understanding is about $60 million in this fiscal year to fill the deficit that was created in this fiscal year because of the fall off of revenues from COVID, you know, primarily from travel revenues. So the question will be in next fiscal year, where is the tax base? And do we have flexibility around the COVID money? There's another around 80 to 90 million, if my math is correct, about the second half of that. There's about 150 to 175 million. So there's about 85 million. The question will be how big is the deficit? Um, but I think we should look. I think we should look at our operations now that uh, at the city level. Now that we have you know people not going back to the office. Now that we've got a a different kind of workflow in the city. I think we need to look at the way that the city operates. We've seen some innovations. For instance, inspectors have been outsourced during um, COVID. People have gotten their own inspectors to go out to their properties. I think we just need to have a very comprehensive view for what does post COVID mean and are there ways in which the city actually could do things a little differently that it would allow us to invest in different ways. I think we've also got to look at things like, you know, how are we using our economic incentives? How are we using our tourism incentives? You know, are those the absolute best ways to be using those money or are they better reinvested in other places in the budget that the way we've talked about? You know, fundamentally, if the city doesn't feel safe, it's very hard for it to be a city that is going to drive a lot of tourism and some of those other things. And the other thing that I would say is I think the Buckhead city idea would be devastating for the city. And I think that we have to make sure the whole city is in agreement in my campaign experience on what the core issues are for the city as a whole. But if we don't address those issues and we end up with a city fracturing itself, Charlotte and Nashville and Dallas are going to be so excited that we have done this to ourselves. And so I think we have got to make tangible improvements in the way the city's working, not only to keep, to keep, you know, Buckhead as part of the city, but for the city itself to actually be a better place. So council member Matzegite, who is, who represents Buckhead, he's an outgoing council member. He's not seeking reelection. Um, he issued a 10 point pledge to the mayoral candidates have you read that? Or do you have any thoughts on that pledge? I think it came out today. I haven't reviewed it in detail. Um, 
so I, I can't really comment on it in depth. Um, I will say that my as I've moved around the entire city, issues of city services, issues of infrastructure, issues of unsheltered folks, issues of public safety have been prevalent in every single neighborhood. I, I think that we're at a moment where most of the city, there may be some specifics around it's more tire dumping in Southwest and it's more, you know, uh, the, the, what happens on the Beltline on the east side. But for the most part, I'm hearing a very clear similarity across the city on what folks want fixed. So I, it will be interesting as I sort of review his pledge, whether or not it lines up with what I've heard in other places across the city. Cause I would bet that a lot of the things on his list probably are the same things that, that lots of folks across the city are wanting to see yeah, well, be better. A couple of his that I can remember um, was building the, the new fire and police uh, facility training facility as, you know, basically like build it and build it fast. Um, another was adding another fire station to South Buckhead. Um, but it makes me, it makes me wonder one, like, where's the line, right? When you have a council member that says, in this particular area, these are the 10 demands for our community, right? W what's to say that Cabbage Town wants to do the same thing? What's to say that Midtown wants to do the same thing? Uh, Grove Park, right? So how do you, you know, where do you draw that line of, I want this, uh, and if you don't meet my demands, then I'm packing up and going somewhere else. Well, I mean, I think that when Stockbridge and Eagles Landing were going through a potential, you know, splitting off of Eagles Landing, we saw all kinds of unintended consequences that were brought up. I mean, Moody's, the bond rating service, said that if Eagles Landing left Stockbridge, that every single bond in the state of Georgia was going to be under negative review because of one municipality. Now, why? Because Moody's said, we fear if one municipality splits that you're going to have a whole bunch and all of a sudden the public finance structure is going to fall apart. There are issues around what happens to parks. There are issues around APS and schools. There are a whole bunch of issues, I think, that to your point, if we if we basically say there are ways in which people can exit a city that has been constructed and that we have invested in each other and different neighborhoods have invested and, and said, okay, we're going to pay our taxes and that project's going to be built on the west side. Okay, now we're going to build something on the east side. I think the point's well taken. We have to be very careful about a precedent at all that says that one part of the city can demand things that are in essence exclusive of other parts of the city. Ideally, any political leader wants to find moves that can be made on the public level that benefit a broad swath of the public, right? That can be enjoyed by lots of different residents, that can be beneficial to lots of different parts of the city. And I think that that's, you know, we, we are in a moment in which we need to come back and work much harder to find those ways in which we're making investments that help broad swaths in, of the community. Got it. Uh, just to pivot a bit. So Mayor Bottoms announced that she was not going to seek re-election, which was a bit of a shock uh, to people. Um, there was some thought that you would run for mayor, uh, but you've decided to run for council president. Uh, can you just give folks a sense of, you know, why you made that decision to run for council president instead of mayor? Recognize you've never run for anything before, right? So even mayor would be a big leap. Council president certainly a big leap as well. Uh, but just why council president? Why now? So I think... Uh, why now is because 
I do think that the city is fracturing. I do think that Atlanta's strength has long been that we have built relationships across racial lines, across religious lines, and we've been able to use those relationships, not perfectly, but we've been able to use those relationships to deal with issues of segregation, to deal with issues of economic growth, to deal with issues of minority participation, all kinds of issues. One, I think we're not investing in those relationships. I have this unique background of working across these lines. And city council president is a consensus building role. It is structurally built to make council build relationships, to have relationships with the city, with the mayor, to have relationships with the community. So I felt like there was a real skill match, an experience match between the role of city council president and my role. I also wanted to make sure um, I am a white, straight, Christian guy. I wanted to make sure that I could build a very broad coalition because I think that any leader in this city needs to, to be able to work across all the different kinds of, of identities that represent the city. And I felt like that as city council president, that that was not only the job, but I also could bring together that kind of campaign. And I wanted to run that kind of campaign across the whole city and bringing all kinds of folks into the city process. And so this was the race I felt like that that was the kind of race that I was going to be excited to run, that I could run that was going to be very inclusive and that matched my skill set at this moment. And I'll say one more thing about why now. We still have a lot of economic tailwind. We still have enormous amounts of investment. This is not a moment in which we're not growing. The question is not whether or not we're going to grow. The question is how we're going to grow. And that also is a very interesting policy moment. I think we're going to make a lot of policy decisions coming out of COVID. They're going to set the tone for the next 10 to 20 years. And so being in the public sector, as opposed to, to trying to make change from the private sector or from the nonprofit sector in this moment felt very, very um, real and very, very important at this moment right now for me. How do you get the public, how do you get council members, if you are a council president, to think beyond a four-year term and to think 20 years down the road, 50 years down the road? What does the city look like you know, today compared to 2040, 2060? Yeah. You know, it reminds me, when we were building the Center for Civil and Human Rights, I had about 125 meetings with Everybody from Joseph Lowry and James Orange down to, to folks who had been foot soldiers in the movement. And I would always ask them what they were most afraid of when it came to building the, the museum. And almost everybody said some version of when I'm gone, my grandkids won't care what I did and they won't care about this legacy. And that formed the basis of how we thought about the center because we all agreed we wanted their grandkids and my kids and everybody else's grandkids to care after we were all gone. And so people started to rally around the notion of, okay, we're building this for my grandkids and for grandkids I'm never going to meet. And it became the focal point. And when we made decisions, they'd say, okay, let's not tell the story that way. Let's tell it this way because we're telling it for the kids. It became this kind of catalytic vision that we all shared. And it was personal because people could envision their own grandkids. They could envision my grandkids or whatever. I think that's what leadership in the public space looks like. You, it can't just be the technical aspect, and it can't just be the should have, and we could, and we should, and we ought. But it's got to turn into a long-term personal objective. I want this because I want my grandkids to be able to do it. I want this because I know that if we do these things now, this, those trees are going to be here in 50 years, and that's going to outlive me, and I know what it's going to mean. You have to make the long term in some way personal, 
and get everyone then to align on that vision and work backwards from it to say, okay, we want the city to be working this way and it's personal to me because of these reasons and I thus am willing to one, align on that vision and to sacrifice somewhat today in order to allow that to happen. And I think it's hard work. I think it's very hard work, but I think it absolutely can be done. So, so what do you say to, just in, as we wrap up here, what, what do you say to the person who, you know, 25, 30, like they're just struggling to make end meet, ends meet, right? Um, not really sort of paying attention to politics, but just feels like, you know, my job right now is to put food on the table. My job right now is to like make it to see the next day. Why should they care about this race? Why should they care about the future of the city? I think one, all of us during COVID probably have at least one story in which we discovered a walk that we didn't know existed, or we discovered that there was a park that we really enjoyed, or or something that was very, or something that upset us. That sidewalk isn't fixed, and I keep tripping on it when I take my kids out for a walk, or they want to ride their bike. Or I applied for rental assistance. Or I applied for rental assistance, and I didn't get the money, right? I think that... that that one, we've all had some tangible experience during COVID in which the the role of the city, positive or negative, has become much more real than ever before. My yard trimmings haven't been picked up in two months, and I've got mosquitoes, and I really understand that because I'm here every day, right? So one is, I think, everybody has that experience, and, and understanding that a good city government makes those things better, and a bad city government makes those things worse, helps people then begin to say, okay, I understand why this is important to pay attention to. I think the other is so many people come to Atlanta because they're coming from a small town or they're coming here in order to start a business or they're coming here because they want to be close to family, but they have come here to try to create a life that they want. And the city has an enormous role in the ability of people to be able to live the life that they want to live economically, socially, community-wise. And I think we spend a lot of time on, on national politics. We spend a lot of time on state politics. But the day-to-day experiences of whether or not it really feels good to wake up and know you're going to be in Atlanta on a Tuesday or you wake up and it's really going to be a struggle often come down to city politics. And so to me, I think it's a combination of that personal experience in the last few months combined with the notion that a lot of really what makes Atlanta tick is the ability of people to define their own futures. And I think right now we need to make policy so people can do that. All right. My, my last question What do you want to see in the next mayor of Atlanta? I want to see a mayor that is very operationally and tactically focused. I don't want a stepping stone mayor. I don't want a mayor that talks about in generalities. I want a mayor that's got a 10-point list and says, hold me accountable to these 10 things. Because one, that's going to be somebody I can work with because we can really dig into those 10 things and we can find ways to fix them. But two, I think that right now we have to make the city work better. That's what people want. They want the city to actually operationally function. And so I want a mayor who's really, really focused on the functioning of the city on a daily basis. Got it. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Hi, I'm Doug Shipman. I've had an incredible Atlanta journey. I was the founding CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. I've worked in the private sector. I was the head of the Woodruff Arts Center. In all of those roles, I've been able to take the Atlanta legacy and turn it into the Atlanta that we see. Right now, I want to be the next city council president because I believe that we need to come together 
to solve our biggest problems. We're going to grow, but we need to make sure that we grow in a way that doesn't leave anyone behind. I want to bring my experiences in all ways in order to help this city work better and work for everyone. Thanks.